Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is September the 9th, 2022. The news remains dominated by the death of the British Queen. Uh, and the more I read and think about the death of the Queen, it seems to me more that uh, the more unknowable a woman is, the more mysterious, the more magical qualities we seem to give her. Now, it, it's a bit of a jump from the Queen of England to uh, Josephine Baker, who is the subject of our show today. But perhaps in an odd kind of way, these two women have something in common, both heroic um, and also deeply mysterious. Um, but the one thing that one can't say about Queen Elizabeth of England, the recently departed queen, was she was uh, neither an American beauty nor a French hero. And above <laughs> all else, she wasn't a British spy. And that is, of course, the subject of my show today, Agent Josephine, which uh, is a new book about uh, Josephine Baker, uh, written by uh, my guest today, Damien Lewis, who is talking to me from, as he said, deepest Dorset in the United Kingdom. And as it happens, uh, he's the second guest this week from Dorset. Helen Rappaport as well was on the show. So it's a small world. Uh, Damien, I know that comparing the Queen and Josephine Baker might be a little silly, but do they have anything in common? Yeah, they do. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about um, the Queen's sense of duty and service. And yeah, there's been some hyperbole that, you know, she uh, will never see the likes of it again. I'm not sure about that. But, um, you know, she certainly had a very, very strong and um, dedicated sense of service to her people in the nation. Um, and Josephine shared that. Um, especially during the war. I mean, the, the war was Josephine's coming of age. It was the watershed moment when really she changed from being a, a global superstar. You know, the, you could argue the world's first really global brand. Uh, Josephine was the most photographed woman prior to the war, um, such a star. But the war changed her and it made, she found her calling, her, her, her reason to, 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 to de dedicate her service to to defeating the Nazis. And that was really something which, to my mind, epitomized her courage and a sense of dedication and a sense of sacrifice to, uh, you know, to, to the causes she believed in. So, yes, there are some similarities. I mean, it's easy to make sense of the sense of duty of Queen Elizabeth of England. She was brought up with the idea that she would eventually be queen and everything in her upbringing was rooted in the idea of service. Josephine was born, so to speak, on the other side of the tracks, very dramatically, very vividly, the other side of the tracks. She was born in June 1906 in, in a segregated St. Louis, Missouri. Um, were there things in your view about her background, her upbringing, that meant that she was able to serve so heroically in, in, in the Second World War? Well, it's curious you ask that because um, I've had a number of um, conversations with uh, former intelligence, uh, you know, uh, espionage um, 
agents, uh, both in the States and in the UK, about a Josephine story. There's an awful lot of interest in that community. And what uh, a number of them have said to me is, and I think this is absolutely true, that the very best spies, the very best special agents are forged in fire. You, the, the, the tougher your upbringing, the more you've had to fight to make it in life, the better you will be as a spy, as, as an agent of the shadows. And of course, few could have had a more uh, troubled and difficult early life than Josephine. I mean, she, you know, as you say, born, up, born and brought up in St. Louis and, you know, scavenging coal off the rail cars with her street gang, going to school barefoot, um, you know, leaving school in the very early teens, running away to try to make it on the stage. She had a tough, tough life. And let's not forget, you know, that made Josephine a street fighter. She was tough. She was forged in fire. She was tough. And so when it when it came to the really hard end, life-threatening, um, deadly, dangerous game of spying, which she 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 became so embroiled in in World War Two, and actually such a such, such a master of in World War Two, she had that edge. She had that metal. She had that 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 die-hard uh, ability to endure, um, which which gave her the edge and you know it's, it's one of the things that i was fascinated by researching the book is you know she worked alongside a lot of professional long-standing intelligence agents and most of whom were male incidentally um french british but also americans and at all stages pretty much all of them you know reached a point where they doubted that that the allies would win the war in fact they believed that the, the, the nazi german germany had won and and, and we faced defeat Josephine never did. Not for one moment did she ever, at least publicly, admit that their that the feet stared us in the face. And she always used to say, "You do not know America. When America joins the war, and America will join the war, we will win. The war will be won." Of course, she was absolutely right. So she actually shored up and 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 boosted the morale and and gave them the will to fight to those professional agents alongside whom she served. That's actually quite surprising, given that she was a refugee from, and maybe that's the wrong word, but she certainly didn't live in America, and she chose to leave, and uh, America was, to put it mildly, unfriendly to black women or black people in general. Um, so where did this faith in America come? Was it more in black America, or was it the ideal of America with the promise of equality and justice? No, I think in the war, it was the uh, the knowledge that, um, you know, Americans were fighters, you know, when and they would fight for freedom, despite the injustices she had suffered in her country. She she believed in her heart and her soul that that, 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 that the American people would come out fighting black, white, you know, immigrant, whatever, whatever one's background, native Indian. The American people would come out fighting. And not just that, of course, America had the industrial might and the. Um, and, and, and the ability to manufacture war material, which which would give the Allies the edge. So on the edge, so on those two 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 kind of fronts, she believed in the American soldier, the, the the martial spirit of the American soldier, and she believed in the industrial and military might of America as a nation. Um, and that's really where her convictions came from. And but but she said, you know, very clearly, she said, look, um, you know, when she witnessed segregation within. The American military, which she did when the American landings took place in, in North Africa, she said, um, you know, why are we fighting Nazi Germany if we have segregation in, in, in our own 
armed forces. So she realized there was a battle to be fought also in America, but she absolutely believed that the American uh, soldier would deliver. I want to come back to America later in this conversation, Damien. Um, and I want to get to the heart of the story of Agent Josephine as Josephine Baker as a uh, as a French spy. But um, how did you get to this book? I mean, you're well known. Um, you, you began as a war correspondent. You've written a number of best-selling books about war. How did you find this story? It's a massive undertaking. The book is enormous. It's, I think it's a bestseller in America. It's been acclaimed on lots of fronts. How did you get into this? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's been a, it's been a decade long journey, at least. Um, so what really piqued my interest was about 10 years ago, and I can't remember what medium it was on. It could have been social media or, or in, 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 in the kind of print media. But I, I read a snippet somewhere about Josephine being a, a, sp a spy during the war. And I just thought, well, that's impossible because she was so instantly recognizable, um, you know, so, so, so such high profile. How could she possibly have served as an agent in the shadows? So that piqued my interest, and I, and I kind of started digging. And I realized the more I dug, no one had ever told Josephine's wartime story. There are lots of biographies of Josephine, Josephine Baker, as, in, you know, as, as indeed you would expect, but no one had actually told her wartime story. And I couldn't quite fathom why, because the more I looked into it, the more extraordinary it seemed to be. And then, um, because my, my father... Um, and my stepmother live in France. Um, they, by pure chance, paid a visit to Josephine Baker's chateau. So this was her resistance headquarters uh, early on in the war. It's in the Dordogne, Chateau de Milan. And it's now run as this magnificent, wonderful living museum to her life and work. And it's spe with special mention of the war years. And my father called me up and said, you wouldn't believe where we've just been. And it's this amazing chateau and it's Josephine Baker. And did you know she was a spy in the war? And you know, uh, what an incredible story. And I said, well, actually, I've been researching that for the last, you know, uh, half a dozen years. And so I then went to visit myself and and one was sucked in. And then uh, the final kind of piece of the jigsaw puzzle, in a sense, was that the French government, who, who deserve enormous, enormous um, praise and recognition for doing this, they released a, a, a large body of the secret, top secret wartime files about their espionage operations, including those about Josephine Baker and her espionage partner, her, her real right-hand man, her handler originally, uh, that her recruiter actually into French intelligence, Captain Jacques Abte, and various other individuals. And without those files being released, one could not have told the story, certainly not in, in, in the way it's been told. So before we get into the story, let's let's frame it. Let's um, let's introduce it by understanding uh, where and who Josephine Baker was in, shall we say, 1939 or 1940 when the Germans invaded France. How did how did she end up in France? So Josephine um, left Saint Louis in her early teens, and she, and she had she had this sense that she could possibly escape the poverty and, and deprivation of her youth and make a living by singing and dancing. Um, and so she she realized that the only place she could really do that was Broadway, was New York, you know, on the Broadway stage. And so she managed to get herself eventually a part on Broadway and she was relatively successful on Broadway, but always the shadow of segregation overshadowed her achievement and what she could do. And when she was 19, just 19, 
she was approached by an impresario who was putting on a new show, organising a new show in Paris called uh, the, the Revue Negre. And she asked Josephine to be the star, the female star in the show. And Josephine had heard that Europe was relatively, and that stress, relatively free of racism and, and segregation and prejudice. And she decided to take a, a, a huge risk and go. You know, she took a heart in her hands and set sail on a liner and, and sailed for, for, for France and Paris. And when she arrived there and she, and she you know, was the leading lady in the Revue Negra, which was this kind of risky, semi-naked, um, you know, very provocative show, but was, 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 was very controversial, but actually hugely successful and took first Paris and then France and then Western Europe by storm, you know, which she performed all over the major capitals of Western Europe. And so very quickly, by her early 20s, she had been catapulted into stratospheric stardom. I mean, you know, earning a very large amount of money, um, luxury cars, luxury lifestyle, all the accoutrements of being a star. And of course, she was she was a star both of dance and of song. And then she became a movie star. She was the first black female to get a lead movie role. So lots of firsts, lots of acclaim and, and lots of recognition. And as I say, had performed in all the major capitals across Europe, including, of course, Berlin. Uh, she'd been to Germany, had rapturous receptions there in the early 1930s, but went back there later after the rise of Hitler um, and had a terrible time and was run out of the country facing horrendous abuse. And so she realised firsthand uh, what was coming, you know, what, what the rise of Nazism portended. And indeed, um, Goebbels, the Nazi propaganda minister, had actually, you know, she'd come to the Nazis' attention and Goebbels put Josephine on the front of a pamphlet that they printed, um, kind of decrying all the things that that, that Nazi Germany and you know the the the, the 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 misguided credo of the Aryan elite abhorred. So Josephine had been, even prior to the war, identified as a kind of enemy of the Nazi state. Um, did she so, um, did she hang out with leftists? I mean, obviously there were some African Americans in 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 Paris, but. Did she hang out with uh, with leftists, with intellectuals? Um, we, we did a show on the Jewish roots of the modern art business, the um, the, the, the the entertainment business. And again, one, one needs to be careful about falling into stereotypes here. But there were a lot of Jewish people involved also in uh, the entertainment business uh, in France, uh, obviously in Germany before the, the Nazis came to power in Weimar. Did she have good relations with um, with the creative community, with intellectuals? Yeah, absolutely. She was, you know, she was feted, uh, you know, Picasso, um, you know, all, all, all the big names you can think of. Hemingway, you know, he wrote she was, you know. The yeah, most... Hemingway was completely, I mean, it was besotted. hard to blow over. It's hard to make Hemingway besotted, but he was. Yes, he was besotted with Josephine. He wrote she was the most magnificent woman any man saw or ever will. I mean, you know, she, she was she was feted by the great and the good of, of, of the French and the international, certainly artistic community. And she actually, prior to the war, she got married to a Jewish man, Jean Lyon, who was kind of an industrialist, kind of um, had aspirations as a politician. Um, and, and she even, you know, to the extent she she read the Torah in a French translation and carried the Torah with her. She was you know, she's very open to, she actually said of faith, you know, 
a church can be anywhere. It can be a warehouse. It can be a forest. It can be a synagogue. It can be a mosque. It can be a, it can be a you know a, 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 a Baptist church. She had this very pluralistic sense of faith. Yeah, the, the New York Times review of your book uh, suggests that she was a, a complex woman who owned a Jewish prayer book, wore a dijalaba in yes. Marrakesh, and had a Roman Catholic funeral when she died in yeah. 1975. There, there you go. She she embraced a lot of churches, and she did so very publicly and, and with no sense of contradiction in doing so. I think it's one of the really admirable things about her kind of philosophy on on, on life and, 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 and spirituality and belief. But yeah, she was absolutely you know, at the heart of that creative artistic hub uh, in Paris. And, and, so and she was beautiful, she was successful, she was charming, she was lo beloved. And then the Germans invade in 1940, then what? Well, prior to the German invasion, the British and French intelligence services who were working hand in hand uh, in the run up to the war, they knew that the war was coming. They knew, uh, you know, Nazi Germany would invade. And actually they knew that France could not stand. You know, France would fall. What they didn't know, what they didn't realise was how quickly France, France would collapse, you know, uh, four, four weeks and, and Paris was taken. And it was, it was inconceivable. Um, and so Josephine was, was recruited as a, what, you, what they termed an honourable correspondent, uh, which was a freelance um, voluntary spy, somebody who would spy on behalf of France and the Allies eventually um, out of the sense of duty and the sense of, you know, the, the fight for freedom um, and, 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 and the allegiance to her country. So she was recruited as an honourable correspondent actually prior to the war broke out. So her first espionage missions were actually prior to Nazi Germany's invasion, trying to work out actually what the intentions and plans were of Nazi Germany and the Italians and the Japanese, actually, so that the Allies could better prepare themselves for what was coming. So she was signed up and then the Germans invaded successfully. Mm. And then was she essentially activated? So Josephine fled to uh, Chateau de, de, de Milan, the, the, the Don Chateau that I mentioned um, earlier. And, and actually, at that stage, she had no idea what she was going to do, as did you know, 99.9% .9 of all French men and women had no idea how to resist. No one had even conceived of or planned for this cataclysmic collapse of France and French resistance. There had been a plan mooted that Josephine would be the ideal person to kind of carry intelligence from, from, from France after the Nazi, Nazi Germany invaded to London, which would be the, the seat of, you know, allied resistance, because she had this incredible ability and excuse to travel and cross borders. You know, she was a a, a, a globally famous entertainer and people still needed to be entertained even in a time of war. But all of that had fallen by the wayside because of the collapse of France being so precipitate. And it was only when Jacques Abte, who was her recruiter and her handler, found his way to, to her chateau in the Dordogne and proposed to her a, a means that they had conceived of to fight back, to actually resist. And this was in kind of summer 1940 that she kind of fight, found her mojo and realised that he was a conduit that would really take a blow in the Allied cause. Given that Goebbels had put her on the, the, the Nazi enemy list, why wasn't she arrested? Why was she able to stay in her chateau in France? Why didn't she leave France? Yeah, well, you know, she was obviously, she was in the, the, the southern part of France, which is, you know, Vichy France. But that so, wasn't was she was, was the was the chateau in Vichy France? Yeah, it was. The, the Dordogne is, is in Vichy actually. It's 
it's uh, surprising, but okay, it is. You, you would have thought it was further south. I did as well until I looked into it. But she was just in Vichy, France. But even there, you're not safe. I mean, you know, the the Armistice Commission, the 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 the, the body that Nazi Germany, you know, put together to oversee the Armistice was actually full of SS and Gestapo, and they had pretty much free reign across Vichy, France. So, and she had, she, you know, the, 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 very very soon in the summer of 1940, she had a. A, a, a an armistice commission colonel and no doubt gestapo turn up at the chateau accusing her of running a resistance cell there and and um and and hiding arms in the chateau and if 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 you look at that scene where she fronts she fronts up to that that uh that armistice commission officer it's it's fascinating it kind of epitomizes what made her so special in that she absolutely with this icy calm and this um this spirit of resistance she is complete not only does she is she non-apologetic but she turns the accusations back on him and it to such a degree that he thinks in his own mind if she was actually hiding weapons here and if she was running a resistance cell it's impossible that she could be behaving in such an arrogant and accusatory fashion to an officer in 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 the German uh, military like me, and that's how she gets away with it at, at that moment. And this kind of epitomised so much of her espionage work thereafter. It was that it was that front. It was her her ability to be Josephine the superstar and and wow and 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 overawe and uh, deny you know so 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 visually and so vocally that she might be anything else other than that which uh, got her through i mean she, you know her superstardom was her cloak and her dagger right she so her mask was her mask yes her mask was her mask she was hiding in plain sight that's what i that's what book drew me to the story in the first place how could she have done it well there's the answer her mask was a mask she was hiding in plain sight and it worked brilliantly um and you know that when jacques Abte recruited her he went to her chateau in in paris she had two although the, the one in the Dodon was rented at first, but he went to her, her Paris home, expecting her to be, you know, kind of dripping in jewellery and a, a, a kind of flighty, fragile showbiz personality. But what actually happened was she sat him down in front of the fireplace at uh, Le Vecinet, her home in Paris, and she treated him up close and personal to what she, she had uh, as a performer, which was this unique ability to reach out and touch every single one of her audience. Uh, Jean-Pierre Reggiori, who was her dance partner towards the end of Josephine's performance life, who lives in the States and is a lovely guy, French, but now lives in New York, has talked to me about it a lot. And he said, look, Josephine was unique. She could reach out and touch anyone in her audience. And she would do that at every performance so that every single person sat there somehow believed she was singing just for him or for her. And that's what she did to Jacques Abte. She just treated him to the Josephine effect. And he thought to himself, boy, if we can harness that to gathering espionage, if we can harness that to seducing the enemy, she will be unbeatable. She wasn't unique in the sense that she wasn't the only woman with a great deal of charm who was working perhaps in espionage in the Second World War. We did a, a show on Coco Chanel yes. with the writer Joya Diliberto. She has a a novel out, Coco at the Ritz, which imagines Coco Chanel as a German spy. Are there mm -hmm. comparisons between Josephine and I'm using your 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 pronunciation now, Damien? I'm not mm. I'm not pronouncing her 
Josephine, I'm saying Josephine, between <laughs> yes. Josephine and, and Coco Chanel. Yeah, I, mean, I actually Coco Chanel was bad and Joseph Josephine was good, but they had a lot in common, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, I, I've got the book and, and you're right. Uh, you know, one was on the side of the angels, one you could argue was not, very much not. But in terms of their methodologies, in terms of their modus operandi, in terms of their spycraft, there was, of course, there was vast amounts in common. They both used those those same charms, those same abilities to seduce, whether that be intellectually or physically, you know, is, is by the by. And I'm sure it was, in, you know, on, on both uh, fronts with Josephine, and it certainly was with uh, with with Coco. But they they used similar um, means, and they had similar they had similar weapons in their arsenal. Um, whether they were, I, I the think the standout factor about Josephine um, and her, her espionage work throughout the war to me is that she was so unbreakable, so unbreakable. I mean, actually, at one stage, I wanted to call the, 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 the book Unbreakable because she ends up being so ill and, and so many times on death's door. A lot of people who read the book have said to me, why did she not give up? You know, when she'd done three years, when she'd done four years, why did she not say, look, it's taken so much out of me. I am so drained. I've been on death's door so many times. Why did she not say I've done enough? I've given enough. Take me back to America. Let me recuper recuperate in the land of my birth. And she never once did. She actually was there as the Allies marched into Berlin and remained after VE Day and VJ Day to perform in the concentration camps. It's unbelievable. You know, so from before the start of the war until after the end of the war, she never once stopped doing what she was doing. And, and that to me is it's a standout quality. Yeah, yeah. The book is called uh, Asian Josephine in, in America. But in, in the UK, where it came out uh, earlier this year, it's called The Flame of Resistance. How important, how effective was her uh, espionage work. I, I understand that this is a wonderfully dramatic and probably cinematic story, but did she do any damage to the Germans? It's more um, what help she gave to the Allies. So I'll give you an example because it's, it's, it's easier to talk about um, actual practical examples. So in the summer of 1940, when France fell, Churchill called a meeting with his top intelligence chiefs just after he was elected, you know, well, brought to power. He wasn't elected, of course, he was brought to power. And uh, he said to them, you know, we are blind to France. We need visibility in France. And what he meant by that was every single British agent and French agent, for that matter, was gone. There was no contact with any of them anymore. No wireless contact, just no means of making contact. France had gone dark. And Churchill said, we cannot you know, we cannot endure with they were facing invade an invasion, Operation Sea Lion, the Battle of Britain, and then the Blitz. We cannot endure without intelligence and visibility. And so when Jacques Abte, Josephine's espionage partner, handler, came to her at her chateau in the summer of 1940, the mission she was given was to take all of the intelligence. I should repeat that, all the intelligence gathered by what was then the underground French intelligence service since the fall of France until eventually it was until about September 1940. So all the material gathered was to go into Josephine's tour luggage. Yeah. Some of it written in invisible ink on her musical scores, her, her, her songs, but a lot of it actually carried as raw intelligence as photographs and reports and signals intercepts 
And all of that intelligence she was to carry from France across the border into Spain, across many checkpoints and borders in Spain, then into, Lis into Portugal to Lisbon, because Portugal was neutral. And at Lisbon, the, the British had an embassy, of course, and in the embassy was a cell of the British Secret Intelligence Service, and she was to deliver it to the Secret Intelligence Service so it could be rushed back to the UK. Now, that intelligence was... You know, that was war-changing intelligence. And not only And this that, is in all the records, Damien. This is not your speculation. This is fact. No, 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 absolutely. This is, this is, this is you know, on the record, you know, to the extent that the, 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 the spy master of the secret intelligence service in Paris, long before the war, uh, was a chap called Commander Wilfred Biffy Dunderdale, amazing character. Um, and he was one of, you know, Josephine's, you know, luminaries and, and, and worked very closely with the French intelligence. And when Josephine gets to uh, Lisbon with all her trunks and the 40 something files are delivered to the British embassy and they're sent back to London, Dunderdale sends a telegram back to the Lisbon embassy and says, you know, we are delighted with what you have delivered to us. But more importantly, in a way, J Josephine and Jacques Abte, they went there together were determined to go to London and meet with uh, General Charles de Gaulle, the leader of the Free French in exile. And Dunderdale said, do not come. He said, I need one of you to go back to France immediately to get that pipeline that you've now established, that intelligence pipeline flowing. So that's from the underground French intelligence service in, in, in both occupied and Vichy France through Lisbon to London. And Josephine, within 24 hours, turned around, got back on a flight on her own, leaving Jack Apte to kind of, you know, put the plan together and flew back into France and went to Marseille, uh, the port city on the Mediterranean coast, met up with Colonel Paylol, who was running now the French Underground Intelligence Service and started the pipeline flowing. So those two elements, that's just two, you know, two of, of dozens of espionage missions she undertook were absolutely um, war changing, war changing. Yeah. It is an astonishing story, Damien. You mentioned that um, France had gone dark, uh, and you mentioned Churchill. You begin your book with a quote from Churchill. Uh, he, uh, uh, what is the use of living if it not be to strive for noble causes and to make this muddled world a better place for those who will live in it after we've gone? Classically Churchillian words, but... Churchill was also a notorious racist. How familiar was he with the Josephine Baker story? And did it change his mind about the supposed inferiority of, of black people in his you mind? Know, it's, a, it's a fascinating question. Um, the answer is I don't know. What I do know, and this is something that really struck me, um, Josephine held Churchill in great regard. Um, she held him in great regard, and, and, and this is partly speculation on my part, because I don't know exactly why. I presume she held him in great regard because he was such a magnificent wartime leader. That doesn't, you know, that doesn't deny what the, the, the past, and as you say, some of the horrendous things that he said about, you know, um, uh, racial prejudice, etc. But Josephine held him in great regard to such a degree that right until the end of Churchill's life, she was sending him birthday cards and things and, and similar and telegrams, etc. And he was responding. And they had this almost kind of like teasing um, 
you know, jokey relationship, which which is kind of touching. And you know, when which is very um, as well, I think very Chilean, absolutely. And and when um, you know, when 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 Victory VJ Day, uh, the, sorry, Victory in Europe VE Day, was declared, Churchill invited Josephine to be you know one of the key performers at the Victory celebrations in London. So they had this relationship, um, and it was it was pretty special. And she she held him in real esteem. So, you know, that's why I put the quote there. It's kind of not a quote from me, if that makes any sense. It's a quote that it kind of encapsulates, as far as I I see it, her view of him. Um, and, 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 you know, I, I find that surprising, but 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 it's it, it's there in all her writing and all the documentation. D Damien, you, 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 you said earlier, well, why didn't she just go home uh, when she was sick in the war? The question is, was America home? I mean, after the war, uh, she, she, she's one of those famous Americans who are no longer U.S. citizens. Um, she was, um, she were in, in 2021, she was interned in the French, uh, in the Pantheon in Paris. I mean, she essentially became French after the war. She didn't embrace America or her Americanness, did she? She said to, um, Jacques Abte, uh, when he went to recruit her, and he eventually he popped the question. He sounded her out for a while, realized she would be amazing. This was in, you know, even before the war. And he said, look, you know, would you be a, a spy for France? And she said, France has made me all that I am and given me all that I've ever wanted. I'm paraphrasing. I am willing to give France my life. But bear in mind, you know, her signature tune, if she had one, and this is you know, everyone says this was Josephine's song. She always performed it was J'ai des amours. I have two loves. And the two loves were Paris, but also America, the, the, the land of her birth. So, you know, it, it's hard to it's hard to kind of encapsulate what her relationship was with the States. I guess in a way it was it was it was in part schizophrenic. Um, there was a dichotomy there. Um, it, she was tortured at times by it. But, you know, just to give you an example of, of, of kind of how Americans or at least American commanders saw Josephine during the war, when uh, the Operation Torch landings took place and all the American generals turned up in, in, in North Africa, where Josephine was then based running her espionage missions and fighting, um, you know, to, 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 to remain alive. They went to Josephine and they offered her a contract, an exclusive contract for the rest of the war to perform for American troops because they realized what an incredible morale booster she was to for American forces. And Josephine said, I can't sign it because I have to be free to perform for all troops, regardless of their nationality, as long as they will fight in the Allied cause. And also I can't be paid. And she refused to be paid for any of her espionage or morale work um, throughout the war. So there was this, you know, there was this kind of, she had a tortured relationship with America. She abhorred the segregation. She abhorred the inequality. But there were many things about the land of her birth that she, she, you know, she loved and she admired. I mean, I told you about how she always said to everybody in the war, America will join the war. You've never seen what Americans can do. Then we will win. As I said earlier, she was interred in the, the Pantheon in Paris in, in 2021 as a great French hero in a... In, in the cosmic pantheon, uh, 
Damien, who would you include her with? Uh, people talk about her in the same breath as Nina Simone or Angela Davis, political figures. Would you see her ultimately, her legacy in political terms? Was she a woman who contributed her life above all else to the emancipation of African-Americans? You know, that's that's a brilliant question and fascinating. Um, I, I tell you how, you know, the, the simplest way to answer it is this, okay? Um, after the war, to the end of her days, Josephine died pretty much on the stage. She was doing her, her comeback tour at the, the, the Babino Theatre in Paris and, and, and pretty much, you know, dropped dead shortly after one of those performances, you know, sadly. Um, but she went out, she always wanted to go out, you know, she went out singing and dancing. But, but you know, from the end of the war to, until then, whenever anyone asked her, Josephine, what are you most proud of in your life? She would always, always say, the war years, the war years, and then the fight for equality. So she wouldn't say, I'm, I, I, you know, I'm so proud that I was the first female lead in a movie or, you know, that I, I, I wrote so many, you know, uh, chart-beating songs or whatever it might be. It was her fight for freedom and equality. That's what defined her uh, once, once the watershed of the war was passed. So, you know, yeah, I, I, think, um, I think she became because of the war, a serious player in that field, in the field of active activism, civil rights and the battle for freedom in all its forms. And that's why I wanted to write the book. I wanted to write the book because it's the the war was what changed her, what made her work. You know, and people know Josephine as as I think most people know Josephine. All the feedback I've had is people most people know Josephine as a singer and a dancer and a performer. But this was really who she was. As all the makings of a movie, uh, Damien, I'm sure you've sold the movie rights. Uh, there's just the movie just came out about a uh, possible love affair between Le Courboisier and Josephine yes. Baker yeah, on, yeah, a, on yeah. a cruise ship. Um, yeah. Are you going to make a movie of the book? I would love Not to see... Not you personally, but Not I... Not me personally, no. But I, I, I would love to see Josephine's wartime story, um, you know, either as a movie or, or, or as a TV series, TV, TV drama series. I mean... You know, this is this is a story that we all should celebrate, but we all should know more about. You know, I, that there were the contribution of people of color to winning the war was enormous, and it, it's actually little known about or publicized. It was so so vast. Um, you know, for example, you just take a look at the number of Commonwealth troops in the British. You know, who served in in, in the British military or in the British cause millions of them so the more of these kind of stories that we can put out there to kind of you know yeah to kind of correct that 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 perception perhaps that that people of color color did not play such a major role the better it will be and josephine's is, is a prime example of that you know there is no better one to to get that ball rolling well it's a great story uh agent Josephine in the United States, uh, the flame of resistance in the UK. It's the same story. Congratulations again, Damien. Wonderful achievement. Ten years of work. Um, what else are you reading? You look as if you're surrounded with books there in your uh, little den yeah. in Dorset. <laughs> yes. Deepest Dorset. Yeah. Um, well, I've just um, I kind of plowed my way through that. <laughs> the Which, rum. Oh, uh, my God. The that rum sounds papers. a bit miserable. Well, it's, it's actually... 
Rommel. The, the Rommel. These are that for people not watching. It's the Rommel Papers. The Rommel Papers. Yeah, it's 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 actually the diary of G German General Rommel during the war. And the reason why I've read it is partly because I'm researching that that area of conflict at the moment. But also I've read it because Rommel was, apart from being, you could argue, a brilliant general, he was a brilliant writer. He was a brilliant diarist. And and it's a mixture of his diary and his letters to his wife during the war. And it's actually really. Um, it's it's moving and insightful and reflective and you know it's 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 a hell of a piece of work it, you know I've, I've actually really enjoyed reading it and then um just and i've lent it to someone so i don't have the book but uh and I, don't, I can't remember who i lent it to maybe someone watching can give it back to me but i read i, I read that recently the splendid and the, the splendid and the vile by eric larson yeah, it's, it, it, it's a story of Churchill during the war or Churchill and his family during the war. And, you know, I'm a big fan of that author. Um, that is a stupendous piece of work, um, you know, so revelatory. But also he has that ability to write about big, big, big subjects of life, but to make them personal, you know, to get to the personal, to make to make it feel as if some it's it's big history that you can relate to. So, yeah, really enjoyed that as well. That that's one of my all-time favorite books and he's a, a, a stupendous author from one big historical writer to another thank you so much damien that was excellent thank you really appreciate it